everyone. Before we start today's episode, I wanted to take a minute and talk about what we had learned in the previous episode on the Sembrai Wars. The Sembrai could have been Germans. They also could have been Celts. Or they could have been from the East. Or, and this is a likely scenario, it was a combination of Celts and Germans, and maybe some Eastern tribesmen as well. As the Sembrai are moving from one place to the other, they pick up more and more people. The Sembrai were fleeing to the south looking for a new home, somewhere that they could set up and farm. At this point, the Roman Republic doesn't have any major rivals. For the entire period from 146 to 113 BC, there is one disturbance or another within the empire that requires the attention of the Romans. Greece and Macedonia are under attack by the Scordosi, a barbarian tribe, remember, a Roman version of a barbarian tribe, that have moved in from the north and have sacked the great town of Delphi. Jugurtha will unite most of Numidia, and a war will break out between him and the Romans, and Rome is having to deal with three parts of their empire under hostile invasion during a period that our sources focus on internal politics. In 125 BC, the Romans began their first big push into Gaul. In 115 BC, just two years before the Sembrae arrive, the Romans reach out to a tribe called the Taurusi, and they create an alliance with them. In 113 BC, the Taurusi receive word from their neighbors to the north that a large and a potentially dangerous tribe is making its way south towards its borders. And so Consul Baprius Carbo is sent to investigate the disturbance that will start off the Sembrai Wars. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast on Germany. My name is Jacob, and this is episode 12, Sembrai Wars, part 2, First Blood. I hope you all had a great New Year's. We're back on track talking about the first confrontation between the Romans and a possible Germanic tribe called the Cimbri. So, as the recap told you, the Cimbri have been moving south. They have been constantly fighting with other tribes, trying to find land that they can settle, and they've now run into Rome. For the Romans, the Cimbri may have first actually been providing relief and this is actually before they would have met him. Because Rome was fighting the Numidians in Africa, and then also were reeling from an invasion into Greece from the tribe called the Scordisci. However, the Scordisians, after receiving a defeat in 111 BC, stopped their invasion and returned to their lands in the Balkans. After that, the Scordisci don't really bother the Romans for a while. And it's not like the Romans inflict a major defeat again on them. While it could have been the threat that the Roman army represented, some historians believe that it could have been the Decembri who had been threatening the Scordisians from the north. And it forced those raiding barbarians to come home. Unfortunately, There's just no way of knowing what caused them to actually give up their attempts to pillage Greece. While Rome is dealing with the problems in Greece 
and to Africa, they make the important decision to expand their network alliances across the Alps. This, of course, allows them to have eyes across the mountains and guard the passes from dangers that would typically demand a large standing army if they had no allies in the area. And so, as the recap mentioned, in 113, their new ally, the Tarusi, warned them that a large tribe or a possible alliance of tribes was on its way south, and the Tarusi were under the threat of annihilation. Carbo is sent that same year, Papyrus Carbo, and his priorities are stated as such. He is to investigate, using his army, this potential threat, he is to protect Rome's allies, the Trusi, and if this threat is an actual threat, he is to eliminate it to protect Rome. Now, Carbo's priorities for these orders can be seen in his actions, as he halts his army in the Alps, which provides him the best defenses available. His halt in the Alps would protect Rome, but it relied on scouts and the Roman allies to investigate this new migration. And if the Terusi are suddenly attacked, well, it leaves them hanging dry, as the Roman army would not be able to rush to their defense. After the Serembri arrive without attacking the Terusi, Carbo moves off the mountains and arrived in Noricum to investigate this large tribe. Upon running into the Simbri, Carbo was surprised as this was not the barbarian horde that he was expecting. By Carbo's actions and the writings of Apion, a Greek historian who would write about the histories of the wars in this area from the 200s, it seems that Carbo was expecting a large tribe ready to plunder and pillage everything in its path. You see, the Gauls had nearly destroyed the Romans, and it left a permanent mental scar that was passed down to every generation. Every generation feared the return of the barbarian hordes that would once and for all crush Rome. And so it's probably no surprise that when Carbo received word about this large tribe threatening from the north, he instantly thought of that once great threat that nearly ended his city so long, long ago. However, the Sembrai sent ambassadors to Carbo, apologizing for their transgression. They didn't realize that they were on the territory of the Cherusi, nor that they were allies of the Romans. The Sembrai promised to leave the territory and move on. They simply were looking for a place to stay and were avoiding fights as much as possible. For Carbo, this was a complete shock. This is not what he was expecting. He was expecting a fight. He was expecting to have to put these barbarians down, not that they would come up to him and treat him as a fellow nation. Now, Carbo may not have believed the Simbri. There might have been something about their nature that he just instantly mistrusted. 
or it could have been because of Rome's past with their northern neighbors, that Carbo was simply not willing to trust a new one. He may have believed that this deal that the Sembrai were offering him was a ruse to lower Rome's guards, and so he fell into his paranoia that the Sembrai would destroy his army and his allies if he dared to let them go. Or, he did believe them, but he could not just go back to Rome and tell the Senate that, hey, that massive barbarian horde, yeah, they were actually pretty nice. So, you know, we had some lunch, we talked, and then they went on their way. They're gone. Don't worry about them. He would not gain any favor by doing that. It would be far better for him if he went back to the Senate and told them, yeah, that large barbarian threat, well, I've crushed it. It's gone for good. You're welcome. You see, Carbo was a consul for Rome. As consul, he was at the peak of his power. There was always two for Rome, and they represented the executive powers that Rome needed. However, they could only last one year. And so it's important that Carbo used his one year to his best advantage. And defeating the Cimbri would gain him a lot of popularity and help boost his stature after his year was over. Either way, whether it was Carbo being paranoid or Carbo being greedy, Carbo decided that ending the Cimbri was far better than allowing them to leave. However, he wasn't just going to tell them no and then fight them. That's not Carbo's way. So, using the opportunity that the Simbri was offering, he accepted their promise to move on and then did something even better for them, or at least that's what it looked like. He warned the Simbri that the passes in the Alps were dangerous and that it was best that they would be guided by some of his men through these dangerous passes to some good lands that they could go settle. So Carbo offered these guides to these good lands as an act of friendship. But you can probably guess what he told these guides to do. Carbo informed the guides to lead the Sembrai on a long route through these mountains while the Romans would take the shorter route to ambush them at a place called Noria. Now, do you remember what I said about the Sembrai Wars in the first episode? We lack a lot of sources. And this is one of the times that it really bites us in the butt that we don't have better sources for these wars. We don't know much about this battle, In fact, we don't know anything other than the end result. So, I'm going to recreate the battle the best I can, but most of it is simply made up. Afterwards, I'll discuss what we really know about the battle and what we can gather from the aftermath. Before we start, remember what you voted on the Facebook page. If you voted for the Romans or you voted for the Cimbri, be prepared to dance or to cry, as we enter this this battle of Noria. 
Now take a minute. Close your eyes. Clear your mind, unless you're driving. If you're driving, keep those eyes open. Keep watching the road. I don't, I don't want you to have an accident. I can't afford to give you a German burial. I'm sorry. But if you're not driving, close your eyes. Clear your mind. Now imagine a small valley with a plain surrounded by large forests and mountains can be seen of the Alps along the horizon. The sky is dark and cloudy. You can feel tension in the air as a large thunderstorm is starting to build. Up ahead, you see a large group of people disappearing into part of the forest. They're moving along at a decent pace. They're not soldiers. Not all of them. You do see men armed with swords and shields and spears. But most aren't armed at this point. Most are women and children, taking care of the tents, taking care of what goods they still have on them after this long journey. This tribe has been moving for months, maybe years. And they're finally being told about this one place that they can go to. However, the Simbride leaders are a little confused. These guides that the great Honorable Carbo had promised them doesn't seem to be living up to their expectations. They've been going through these mountains for quite a while. The tribe is starting to wear it out. They start to call a halt. Start to set up camp. They decide to use this open plain in front of them. As the tribe starts to move into the plain, starts to set up camp, a sharp horn blast echoes from the forest on the far side. And Carbo's army, which has been waiting for this opportunity for a long time, steps out. The Sembrai immediately react. They don't understand what's going on at first. But then the Romans charge, and panic starts to strike. The Sembrai stare in horror at this approaching army. This is not a battle of two armies. The Roman soldiers have caught the Sembrai off guard completely. Men and women immediately grab weapons, arming themselves as the children and the elderly try to flee. The few warriors who are armed try to slow the Romans down and give the unarmed ones time to escape. However, this thin line of Simbrai warriors breaks as the Romans are able to quickly dispatch the few warriors in front of them. At this point, the first loud crack of thunder can be heard as lightning strikes the sky and it starts to rain drenching the ground, turning this what looked like a lovely plain into a field of mud. Having broken the thin lines of the Simbrai warriors in front of them, the Romans' their formations break down as they give chase to whatever they can find. The Simbrai have scattered to the winds as the women, the children, and the elderly try to escape from the advancing Romans, and the Romans give chase to whatever they can find. Carbo is winning, but 
He's lost control of his army. No one is paying attention to him. No one is maintaining a formation. Suddenly, the Romans start to slow down. Their armor is tiring them out. Catching up to those tribes, people that they can, slows them down from catching the rest. Suddenly, the Romans, who have chased the furthest, are being slowed down not because of their armor, not because of the people they've caught, but because warriors are starting to appear. They start challenging these soldiers on one-to-one combat, and they take them down with ease. The Roman soldier, who's used to having an ally beside him, finds himself alone, trying to fight off a warrior who excels in fighting someone one-on-one. The Roman charge is halted, and after a minute or two of intense action, the Simbri's abilities start to tell, and the Romans are repulsed. Carbo watches in horror as his victory is stolen from his grasp. The warriors that had seemed so few, so far away, begin to now outnumber the Roman soldiers. And the Roman soldiers are cut off from one another because their initial chase in the chaos of the storm that now rages on. Carbo realizes that he's misunderstood the Simbri's power. Cutting his way out of the fast-moving Simbri, Carbo orders that all Romans are to flee back across the mountains to the safety of northern Italy. Those Romans who can hear his horn blast have probably already decided to do so, because they have seen the writing on the wall. As they turn to run, the storm reaches its apex, causing next to no visibility as the beating down rain and the darkened clouds block out the sun. Only the occasional lightning bolt brilliantly lights up the sky enough to see the chaos that rains down on this plain. Groups of Roman soldiers are able to flee only because of the storm and the chaos of battle. Carbo is able to take himself away from the battle, leaving most of his army dead on the plain. Fleeing across the Alps, he makes it safely into northern Italy. His army is destroyed, the Simbri is still powerful, and his career over. Thus ends the first battle of the Simbri Wars on the disastrous plains of Noria. Now, most of this was made up. We don't have that much information on the battle itself. We don't even know where this happened. We have guesses ranging all through the Northern Alps as to where this battle was located. What Apian does tells us is that Carbo ambushed the Sembrai, but the Romans were overwhelmed by the numbers. 
and eventually the Romans had to flee to the forest and the mountains under the cover of a large thunderstorm. Apian tells us that the majority of the Roman army is wiped out by the fighting and probably were killed during the rout as well, with only a few making it back safely to Roman lands. And that's it. Apian doesn't tell us any more about the battle. It could have been that the Sembrae had been wise to the Roman plans, or that Carbo had seriously messed up his ambush. The example I gave was where the ambush was initially successful, but Carbo seriously misjudged his enemy, and the Sembrae were able to restore balance and take out the Romans efficiently. However, the Sembrae could have realized something was going on along their path, taken the scouts, tortured them, found out about Carbo's plan, and set up a counter-ambush of their own. That is just as likely to have happened. Unfortunately, we don't know. The important thing is, is that the Romans weren't attacking an army. They were attacking a tribe. So this was not a bunch of soldiers fighting each other if Carbo's ambush was successful. He would have been attacking soldiers, but also women, children, old and young. All those would have been taken down in the initial attack if Carbo was successfully able to launch his ambush. After this battle, after Carbo's failed attempt, instead of reporting that the Sembrae had been crushed, he had to report that his army had been wiped out at a point in time that Rome could not afford to lose an army. Now, to us, especially those who voted that Rome was going to win this battle, Rome's crushing defeat by the Sembrae seems a surprise. I mean, consider what we said about the early German warfare and compare it to what we know about Rome's. The early Germans don't wear armor. They're carrying spears, and shields. The Romans have armor. They have swords. Overall, you would think that the Roman would be better prepared to fight than the German. However, there are a couple of factors that we have to keep in mind. First of all, when I say Roman army, you probably think of the Roman professional army that we get with the Roman Empire. The standing army that is constantly trained and prepared to fight. However, we're not dealing with the Roman Empire. We are dealing with the Roman Republic. And the Roman Republic has a hodgepodge army. It requires that their soldiers buy their own equipment. They don't have nowhere near the amount of training. They're simply raised when they're needed. The strategies that we see the Roman Empire have aren't around yet. Julius Caesar isn't here yet. So their armor, their equipment, their training, and the strategies aren't what we think of when we think Roman soldier. Meanwhile, the Sembrae, they are what we would think of for the early Germans, if they are, in fact, early Germans. On top of that, 
While the Romans grab whoever they can to put into their army, the Cimbri have been fighting for years, possibly for years, might have been for a few years, who knows. But they've been fighting for a while against several other tribes. They have experience fighting. And so when the Romans hit them, the Cimbri can fight back. And there is no doubt that the Cimbri would have outnumbered the Romans, as this wasn't an army, but their tribe. Everyone was here. They had everyone available, while the Romans only had one of their armies. So when the Romans are either overwhelmed by the numbers, or if their ambush is successful and they break formation, it's quite quick that the Romans would lose faith and run away turning what could have been a victory into disaster. Now, after the Battle of Noria, you would think the Cimbri would move in and take some territory as payment. I mean, who could blame them? The Romans straight up lied to them, tried to wipe them out with no cause. And it's not the Cimbri who are saying this, it is Apian who informed us about the Cimbri's intentions. So we know it's not the Cimbri going, well, darn you caught us. No, it's the Romans who admit, yes, they were trying to be nice and we kind of backstabbed them on it. But anyway, the Cimbri, instead of taking territory as payment for this betrayal, continue on their way. They keep their promise to the Romans and they move westwards to look for land. This still shocks me. I'm sure it shocks you as well. Because you'd think, after defeating the Romans, that the Cimbri would move into northern Italy and start setting up. However, the Cimbri continue on their way, heading northwest. But it's clear that they never forget the attempt that Rome tried to pull in annihilating their tribe. And so, the first stage of the Cimbri Wars is over. And I think it's safe to say that it is a clear victory for the Cimbri. But both sides come away with a burning hatred of one another. As the Cimbri realize the Romans can't be trusted, and the Romans start to think that their idea that the newest and biggest threat is realized. So in our next episode, we will talk about what happens when the Cimbri's and the Romans clash once again, now knowing what is at stake. All right. Well, I hope you all have a great weekend. I'll see you all next Tuesday.